the first time I came out here, it was just a beautiful, magical place that I knew a lot of good things had happened over the years here. A lot of good plants have grown and a lot of good people have have flourished here. And so Paul has cultivated a really special place with Nancy here and his kids. And it's pretty cool to see and really awesome that I've gotten to just glean from him and glean from the land, to be honest. The soil has been impeccable and I owe it to him for 30 years of cultivating that. It's a lot of effort. These are, that's yeah. the female blossom. So that'll open up and look like that. But. Welcome to Tangled Taproot, where we explore the unique stories of small-scale farmers in the Midwest. I'm John. I'm Kristen. And I'm Angel. And this is a production of Milk and Hummus. What is milk and hummus? We make flavorful hummus and ready-to-drink plant-based lattes that focus on locally sourced ingredients, sustainable packaging, and the humble chickpea. In this episode, we talk to Rachel Greathouse, a food advocate and a farmer of Greathouse Garden Farm, as well as a special guest, Paul Krautman of Bellows Creek Farm, a niche organic farmer of specialty crops over 30-some years. Yeah, it was really great to have Paul come on in to share his wisdom during the during the interview. Really an exceptional amount of experience. I would say, yeah, 30 plus years is not really a type of person or farmer that we've tapped into quite yet. So that was a unique facet of our conversation. Absolutely. And Rachel focuses on a few types of crops. They're unique heirloom varietals such as winter squash or onions. And we're not talking just your yellow, red, white onion varieties. We're talking very awesome, unique culinary varieties. Cipollini, Tropea. I think there's like 11 other kinds this year. And also for winter squash, there's like Delicata, Autumn Frost, Honey Nuts, Sugar Pie Pumpkins. Oh, this one's a really good name. Long Island Cheese. Yes, sounds good enough to eat. I think there's like six other varieties that they're doing this year. Oh, and not only are a lot of them incredibly, fantastically flavorful, but you can eat the skin on many of them. They have a nice edible skin, but then also some can be used as a, a functional, some functional attributes such as a, a loofah, loofah squash. So if you've ever seen those soaps with the little mesh insert, I don't know, what do you want to call it? I guess scrubbing an exfoliator of sorts, a mesh insert sounds like something we put in our sink drains, maybe. Something <laughs> <laughs> yes. a little more pleasant and natural, uh, craft colored of the earth. <laughs> yes, but they're they're uh, pretty cool. Yeah, I think that while since we skipped on to the squash topic, I would say that one of the interesting things, John mentioned the the edible skins of the delicata and honey nut squash, majority of the others, you can eat the skin, but one of the benefits and kind of a unique characteristic of winter squash in particular is its durability because it is a veggie crop that can be stored for a duration of time. Doesn't even need to be in a root cellar. Not many of us have root cellars or maybe even basements. But the fact that in like a place where it's not in direct light and just has some circulating air every once in a while, you could have a, a, a winter squash hanging out with you the whole winter season if you wish and wait until 
March or April to cook it. Yeah, use it as like a, a decoration for a while. And then uh, when you're feeling that right moment, yes, throw it in your oven. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Ideally before it becomes too hot to use your oven. <laughs> so don't lose track of that. I've made that mistake before. <laughs> so yeah, that's squash are a very practical, sort of old-fashioned almost agricultural, culinary, food, nutritional thing that a lot of homesteads have kept in their kitchens mm-hmm. for years, centuries as a reliable nutritional vegetable to have that keeps. Onions also store well. Yeah. And did you know that Vidalia onions are only produced in a specific region in Georgia? I did not know that. I did know that there were some rules like the cultural, you know, where some things come from, like the Bordeaux region of France mm. yes. is the only place like other Regions can grow that varietal of grape, but you can't call it, you know, a Bordeaux wine unless you're in the province, county, yeah, Bordeaux of France. I'm not sure what that would be called. That was very interesting to think about how certain veggies and fruits might be limited to a certain border or region for rules. And Walla Walla, Walla Walla onions, are those from Hawaii or Washington State or something? Some rules with that, too. Might be able to grow it here, but you can't call it a Walla Walla. (laughs) Love to try that. But, I mean, this this tropaya or tropea? Tropea. Uh Like, I don't know if I've ever had that before, so. Yeah, I don't think I ever have. I'm familiar with Cipollini's. It is a highly sought-after chef ingredient, for sure. Yeah, those are those, like, stout. Yeah, kind of smashed, like a little little pancake onion, Mm -hmm. but dense with sweet flavor. Slow cooking, they can get very tender, and you can just kind of eat them like candy. Yeah, and it seems like Rachel focuses on, you know, these onion varietals, squash varietals, or any other sort of crop that is planted and can be nurtured and produces a a ton of, I guess you could could harvest it multiple times in a a season, and uh, that's sort of the, the model that she's been been going after these past couple seasons, few seasons. Yes. So the 2022 harvest, she mentioned that in one acre of her squash, squash population, she yielded almost 15,000 pounds of squash in one acre. We know that they are all viney and they get kind of big and out of control, but that is, that seems like an impressive high density yield for just one acre. That kind of blew my mind. I think there are a lot of things that blew my mind listening to this interview. I came in pretty ignorant. I don't know much about squash or onions or vegetables other than what I've known from growing up or home cooking. But it was really interesting just to see the farmer's relationship to producing produce and how much time and effort goes into it and how much you can yield. Like when I came when I came across the section where she was talking about the 15,000 that she was able to yield, that was wild to me. Or when Paul was talking about the 103 pound um, squash that he was able um, to produce was amazing, very mind blowing. For those in the know, the average weight of an African bush elephant is 13,000 pounds. So Wow. That's uh Did you say elephant? An African bush elephant. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of squash. <laughs> Thanks for that fun fact. <laughs> Work-life balance also comes into play. She was mentioning that a lot of times, especially when you're starting out, you have to work one, two jobs uh, to maintain, I guess, a sustainable existence while you're 
working on agriculture because yeah, of course, you know, right off the bat, especially, you know, the life sort of and its demands require a certain amount of, of funds to, to survive. And so you have to be a multitasking in order to, I guess, develop that, that, that role or that, that job. Yeah. I mean, if you, I feel like anybody listening to this podcast where we are focusing on local and regional growers and farmers, you should already maybe have a respect for what they do because it is so labor intensive. But considering this piece of the pie as well, it really makes you think about how they're juggling to kind of fulfill a passion, but also have that financial stream of consistency. So that's a a lot of hours to be working, whether you're in an air conditioned office or out in the field where there are, are no trees and no shade breaks and trying to maintain like your, your crop, your passion crop, if you will. Yeah. A lot of respect for that dedication and time management. Good golly. (laughs) Cause you have to think about the drive time. This property is about 40, 45 minutes Southwest of St. Louis. Billows Creek. So for her not living there is a bit of a commitment of a drive from St. Louis. She's also an example of another farmer that did not start out, was not born into the farming family and didn't, isn't out of the gate, wanted to be a grower her whole life. It's kind of a developed later in life as a college degree and something completely different. So let that be inspiration to all of us that dream about growing things or changing careers. It's also really important to have a good mentor, whatever your field is. Without one, you know, it's it's easy to be just going it alone is just a real challenge. And uh, having someone such as as Paul, who's been, you know, sort of a, a innovator outside of St. Louis in the agricultural organic field or, ag- or in organic farming in general is really an advantage. Truly. I mean, like the depth of variety and time and experience is just extremely noteworthy. Because it's not just the land, but also the vast amount of knowledge for ability to use certain tools or fix a rare tractor or implement. They try to do sort of minimal aggravation of the soil when they do things. So these are kind of like gentle and unique tractors and implements. So it's not taking them somewhere. It's not taking them to the local Chevy dealer when he has a problem. He's got the tools and the know-how to fix things. And we could tell kind of on the tour that Rachel really appreciated all those extra like non-farming tidbits of advice that she's been gleaning over time from Paul as well, which is neat. Kind of a fatherly figure of sorts, it seems. Yeah, you can do a lot of research on your own, but then in practicality, some things might not work, especially for the the region, the climate. You know, having someone that's done done it, you know, a lot of the, lot of the trial and error really allows someone to sort of stand on their shoulders to have a better view. One other thing that stuck out to me from Paul speaking about his property and sort of the deep connection he has to the land and as well as just some of the knowledge, scientific knowledge he has. But I hadn't really thought about the way that things leave the farm 
when he was talking about any item you sell, whether that's a pound of black beans or a bale of hay or 20 pounds of tomatoes, each of those items, any of those items is a piece of his farm and his investment in right. soil leaving the farm. And that if you burned that product down into charcoal, whatever remained, that weight of that hay bale or the tomatoes, that weight would be, you know, the equivalent of the soil that he's selling or that's leaving or is going to another place. And I never really thought about that sort of translation and transition of land to product, product to land. It's a it's a really a pure statement of how even if you're practicing regenerative farming or organic farming, there's still an extractive component um, at play. And so there is that debate of, you know, you're selling you're selling a product, you're selling a piece of, you know, a piece of produce and And I guess it's a piece of your land. Yeah. Kind of. Right. So yeah, that was that was a little uh existential. Yeah, that's the word. Uh-huh. Yeah. It felt very like an intimate piece of information almost like almost interesting someone like, well, here, I hope you enjoy this because you're taking a piece of me with you. And now uh, we'll let you listen in to the interview with Rachel of Great House Gardens and special guest organic farmer star Paul Krautman. Yeah, so then so every other row is a, uh, a squash variety. Um, we leave a dead, not dead, but an empty row. Um, Rachel Greathouse with Greathouse Garden on Paul's farm at Baloo's Creek is the name of it, Baloo's Creek. Tell us how this began. Like, when did your dream start to come to fruition? Yeah, that's a great question. So, to be honest, I, my degree is in social work, so this isn't something that I have formal education in, but... and. It's a master's degree from SLU, correct? Wow, yes. You've done your research <laughs> on me. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do have a master's at SLU in social work. And uh, my time there while I was studying, I did food uh, justice issues. I was at a nonprofit uh, doing food advocacy work. So I really, while it was social work, I did really enjoy, you know, the food aspect of, of food security. Did um, I worked at a nonprofit for a food bank. So... Yeah, I have always been interested in food. But then shortly after grad school, I was doing community gardens and just really enjoying that. And as I just kept expanding and bought a house and then really transformed our backyard, COVID happened. And I was giving out free plants during 2020 to just folks because everyone was in the gardening boom. And they're like, you're really good at this. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I just enjoy it. You know, it's fun. Give out plants to folks and it was really cool because as the season went on, like there were people I didn't really know. I just connected with over social media. And throughout the time, they would send me a photo, you know, four months later, I've got my first pepper. I've got my first eggplant. I've got my first tomato, whatever. And, you know, I, I had for, quite frankly forgotten that I had given some of these plants to folks, but they were so excited and invested and wanted me to be invested with them, which was really cool. So at the time I was working a desk job and I was pretty over it. And so I was like, you know, people keep saying you might have a knack for this. So I was like, let's try it. And so I worked at two different farms for two different seasons. And it was a steep uphill like learning curve for me to go from my backyard to 
acres and acres. And yeah, during my second season, then I just decided to dip my toe into leasing an acre from Paul and just growing one type of a crop, winter squash, and seeing how it goes. And I really enjoyed it a lot, learned so much out here. And yeah, that's kind of how, the, you know, I'm at my second season now. So that's kind of how I've landed here a it, little bit. So really it was a, a social initiatives brought you into agriculture and then just giving out plants that sort of fostered your interest or that com- in, com- in combination with, with, with COVID just happenstance? Or? Yeah, I that's a really good, yeah, I like the social aspect of it because I've not really ever put it in those terms. But yeah, the that social connection with folks because, you know, COVID was so scary and it was just dropping off plants on my front porch and like waving at people through the window as they came to pick up the plants. And I had way more than I ever wanted. But the the cool thing was, is I started these plants in January, way ahead of way ahead of COVID, I should say, not knowing that I would give any of that stuff away. And it turned into this, yeah, social connection that I was like, I have too many of these things. There's no way I can plant this all in my backyard. I just knew I wanted to grow a lot and and I could. And so I decided to just give out what I had left over. Yeah. And I think I ended up giving away like 300 plants or something, which wow. is not like, <laughs> you say, wow, but not a small number, but it was still like, it was really cool to see the connection with folks. And again, social media has been so powerful. Like I don't have a huge following. I don't ever anticipate having a huge following, but the folks that do follow me in St. Louis that I don't know, but ended up reaching out to me was really cool to say. I've actually had folks come out to work on the farm that I've never met aside from them putting in a DM and saying, sure. I want to come out and weed or I want to come out and harvest. And I'm like, what? You want to come out and do this stuff voluntarily? Okay. Let's do it. So it's pretty cool. What type of plants were you giving away? Peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, pretty much like a lot of fruiting crops. That's stuff I enjoy. Things that I don't have to plant over and over and over again. I can kind of just plant and maintain and, and, and harvest continuously. Those are my favorite type of crops. And that was the kind of vision behind Great House Garden too. We have just myself, Paul, who is a great support, and my husband. And then I just have kind of folks that I call in when a big task is needed. So that was kind of the vision behind and where I see the direction going with this, you know, fairly new, still in my second season, but that's kind of the focus of the crops that I have in the field is things that I can just plant once, weed and cultivate, and then harvest kind of in a big batch. So okay, for scale. I feel like there's been a lot of growth and learning and a small amount of time. It's really neat to hear how this kind of flourished and took shape for you. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of, yeah, like I said, I worked on two different farms, Three Rivers and Theodora, and that gave me a lot of skill and perspective of what does it take to grow a vast quantity of things. Now, I don't grow a wide variety like those folks do, but quantity-wise, you know, last year, just an acre of squash, it was somewhere between 10 and 15,000 pounds, which was really incredible. Yeah. And this year, hopefully have more, but, you know, the season is uh, getting away from the weeds and everything, but that's okay. So yeah, so I've, I've learned a lot from those folks and Paul as well, like being able to see scale um, experience when to just kind of, ultimately, you got to call some stuff of just saying it's just not worth it. 
for time purposes. I think that there's a lot of things that people don't, or rightfully, they don't see on farms of how often you just cut your losses ahead of time. Is there a specific time like this in the last two years that you've uh, decided to go that route? Uh, to call it for crops? Well, I have such limited crops that I haven't. I've wanted to give up on the squash this year a little bit, but Paul keeps you know, pushing me and saying, it's okay, we're going to get through it. You, his, uh, What's your phrase, Paul? <laughs> It'll be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. That's my job now. Yeah. Yeah. Cheerleader. <laughs> okay. He really is. So, yeah. But I think Paul should introduce himself a little bit since he's uh, the man with the land. <laughs> man with the land. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Paul Krautman. We came out of here in 1992. Uh, Nancy and I both wanted to raise a family on a farm. I grew up on a farm. Uh, Nancy grew up with uh, her parents were both educators, administrators. They all had their summers off, and they'd get together with a bunch of other families that were also educators, administrators, and just take off. So she grew up on vacation, turning over rocks and finding crawdads and helgamites and that kind of thing, and uh, wanted to have that experience for our kids. So when we started looking for a farm, that was one of the things that she insisted on was we have to have a creek. Uh, okay, and that worked out fine for me in the Ozarks here. The best land is always down in creek valleys, river valleys, and then there are irrigation resources, certainly. I had never grown a vegetables on this scale at all. We always had a big garden back home, but I knew that I needed really good soil and irrigation resources. You need to, almost everything you eat as a vegetable or fruit is about, oh, anywhere from 80 to 90 something percent water. So, you know, you have to have what they say about an inch of water a week to grow a good crop of vegetables. Okay. So it either comes out of the sky or it comes out of irrigation. So anyway, we've been here for 30. This is our 31st year. We started out uh, just like everybody starts out, you know, and quickly uh, became kind of enamored with the idea of a, a CSA. I called it a subscription farm because when you start out, you don't know how to grow all of this stuff and you don't really even know what everybody wants. You know, I'd never heard of arugula or radicchio or mizuna or, you know, any of this stuff, but I had chefs that were asking about it and I thought, well, hell yeah, I can grow that. And uh, so we used to grow, I don't know, 70 different crops or so. And, uh, you know, if you go to a farmer's market as a new farmer, you just kind of show up with whatever worked well that week, right? But if you've got 75 families depending on you for a nice share of something, you damn well better go ahead and be able to produce it. And so monkey's on your back, you know, to, to really do it. And so we learn a lot, you know, that hockey stick thing there, you know. <laughs> yeah. Steep learning curve. And it wasn't all successful. My second year out here with the creek flooded. It was 1992, 93. And uh, literally there was eight feet of water out on that field that we just saw. And uh, and it stuck around. It wasn't like a flash flood that came through and it's gone in several hours. It was here for a week, you know. So, uh, you know, it's it's not all 100% roses here, you know. Anyway, what? I don't know. We started building the barn that you just saw and it quickly became evident to me that you can grow uh, vegetables for a CSA or you can build a barn can't do both. And so, yeah. And so we uh, quickly decided to grow larger plantings of much fewer crops. And that's when we started growing lots of sweet potatoes, lots of winter squash, 
lots. We were one of the only people, I think, within two or 300 miles that grows black beans. Mm. We grow popcorn. Uh, we did for several years. And there's a lot to that. Nobody grows black beans around here anyway for a really good reason. And that's a, just difficult to grow them. Okay. And they're an entirely different critter than, uh, than soybeans. And so we spent eight, eight seasons probably trying to figure that out. And finally came up with the equipment, the techniques, and so forth to be able to grow them. I did a great job of it, if I do say so myself. Sure. So you really carved out your own niche in terms of the varietals of, of uh, crops that you right. chose. Right. So, yeah, you know, everybody wants to grow tomatoes. Everybody wants to grow peppers. Everybody wants to grow blah, blah, blah. But nobody, you know, and there are a lot of vegetarians in St. Louis, and they're all looking for legumes. They're all looking for beans. I thought, well, hell yeah, there's my niche. So... Anyway. How many acres do you have, sir? We have 77 acres. About half of it is uh, is in woods and homestead. And there's uh, so another 30-something acres that we have in a big pasture. And then about 15, 10 to 15 acres in, in arable land here that we've been growing vegetables on for the last 30-something years. So Amazing. We were certified organic for the first, I don't know, three or four years. And then the USDA got all excited about it back in what must have been the late to mid-80s, you know, their line was, oh, this is an $8 billion business. We can't legislate this happen without some sort of regulation. Everybody was doing fine. OCIA was certifying people all over the globe. And what's CIA? OCIA. OCIA. Organic yeah. Crop Improvement Association of okay. the Galaxy or something or other. I don't know. Their standards were very, very strict, much more so than the USDA standards now. And it's... Uh, Oh, I got up and gave a little talk when we started. Everybody was excited about, well, what are we going to call ourselves? Because the USDA is going to patent the O word, organic, right? They won't be able to use it. I don't have an organic farm. What am I going to call myself? And I stood up. I said, look, it took J.I. Rodale and his cohorts 30-some years to be able to take the word organic out of a strictly chemical, you know, organic chemistry, organic into something that had a bigger patch of blue sky over it. And I got up, I said, look, it doesn't, doesn't really matter what you call yourselves. You can call yourself certified stupid. And in 30 years, you'll have an $8 billion business if you do it right, and you get a good customer base. And the government will come in and say, hey, this certified stupid stuff, we have to have a finger in that pot. And so you have to have a personal relationship with the people you sell to, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that there's not a place for a USDA standard. If I can look at you guys and you look at my produce, we have an open door policy. You can come out here, you come to my solstice party, take you around the farm tour, whatever you want to. If you agree that what I'm doing out here is okie dokie and you cross my hand with silver in exchange for my vegetables, that's pretty rock solid, bulletproof sure, certification. Yeah. That is not true for common guy that's got 2,000 acres of soybeans that the USDA certifies and then he sells them off to Southeast Asia somewhere, to South Korea. That guy needs to have a middleman that both of you trust, as in, you know, the guys from South South uh, Korea, they don't want to come over here. They want to send an agent over here. So that's where it comes in really, really good. But as a, you know, as a personal relationship with your clients and customers, everybody's fine with that. What's a, what about reg regenerative? I mean, I know that that's a new there it is. phrase that's been there quite like often. Like a good high dollar. And, uh, you know, it, it's like, all right, it's not organic, but it's, it's, it's like organic. It's like a step beyond because you're incorporating all these different 
practices. Yeah. And considering uh, soil health and right. other things that contribute to wellness or improvement, which you are already accidentally doing. You, could, you could say everything under the umbrella of regenerative agriculture is under the same umbrella as organic. Yeah, exactly. Or biodynamic. Biodynamic has a little bit of the fringe to it. You know, there's some deal with burying cow manure in a horn and then making some concoction with it, with the manure that's been in the horn, that's been in the ground for so long, and you stir it up clockwise so many times and then counterclockwise so many times, and then you titrate this down to parts per million and spray it on your field. And it's, you know, honestly, okay, if you're willing to do that, you are already a superior farmer, right? If you want to pay that close attention, <laughs> you already... You're already ahead of the game, right? Sure, sure. You're paying that kind of attention to the, what you're doing. You know, if you're getting, is it the B word that makes better produce, right? The biodynamic word? Or are you just, your attention to detail here is is that much closer? And, and ultimately we're saying, or you're, sorry, you're saying in uh, relationships with the end user, with the chefs, with the, with the consumer, with the, the community members is the most important thing. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you can come out here and I can tell you everything about what I'm doing to the point where your ears are numb, right? Sure. They're probably already numb. I'm sorry. No. Um, but if you can do that and uh, have somebody, again, looks like, holy, yeah, this is nice. I'll, I'll go for this without question. I mean, what else do you want, right? Sure, sure. The record keeping and the fees and the inspection that goes along with being being organic, why does that need to be there if what you're saying by trading your dollars for my produce. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, Rachel, you've been, I would say, getting mentorship here. Yeah. So initially I worked, you know, one season at a farm and was looking for another place to work for. And I emailed Paul uh, while I was like in transition of finding another farm to work for. And he reached out to me and he goes, well, I retired. And I remember sitting in my dining room table like reading that email while well, I'm retired. So I don't, you know, I can't hire you and had his phone number. So I just called him up right away and I go, oh, well, if you're retired, what are you doing with all your land? <laughs> and he gave me a chuckle and just kind of laughed at me. It was late January. And I said, well, can I come on out? I don't have a job lined up. So maybe, maybe I could just try to give farming a go after what I thought naively one season. Anyway, I ended up landing another farm job that I worked for. And during that year, I also came out here and farmed. So there were many evenings where I drove from that farm to out here an hour and 15 minutes or so to work another two, three, four hours. I don't have, I'm not doing that this year. I, I have a desk job and which is really great. And uh, I really do enjoy that, but it so gives me, gets me outside doing this stuff that I really want to eventually have a full-time career in, but it's just not feasible at the moment. And I think that that's something notable to bring up as I was kind of thinking about this podcast and notable points is like, there's a lot of farmers that this is not their full-time job. And, you know, this is something they do on the side and they're committed to working those long, long days of 16, 18 hour days. You know, I was talking to Paul as I got here and he goes, how you been? Cause I, I haven't seen Paul in about three weeks. And I said, well, it's been rough, like trying to, you know, yes, I got all the onions out of the field and, you know, they're all dry and now they're ready to be sold. But every time I come home from work, I'm packing up orders till like midnight each night, you know, and it's like, 
you know, I need to be out here and working on my squash and stuff, but I also need to sell my product. So it's this push pull, you know? Um, yeah. So I'm very thankful that I have two jobs that I love, but it also is a harsh reality of saying this isn't sustainable for me yet to go full time in, you know, I have to have another source of income. I'll tell anybody about Rachel. She may be afraid of a lot of things, but hard work is now one of them. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. a great compliment. Yeah. yeah, snakes and spiders being the things I am afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> tell us a little bit about some of the varieties. I, I, I appreciate that you're kind of a almost a unique example to some of the folks we've talked to so far on the podcast in that you are a more focused on just doing a larger quantity of a couple of things that you're just putting your energy and gusto into, which is onions or the allium category, as well as the squash kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about some of the varieties that you've uh, pursued and that you like. And because um, it's kind of fun to hear about these. Yeah. Yeah. Heirlooms you know, most, and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Most folks, you know, when I said I'm going to pursue winter squash, and I had such a great, like you said, mentor of Paul. You you heard what he grew. It was winter squash, black beans, and, and popcorn, you know? We, so We used to grow lots of lots of winter squash. Yeah. Everybody around, all the restaurants and so forth, they were always waiting for me to show up with squash. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was almost like no su- shortage of a supply of, well, Paul, what kind of squash should I grow, you know? And so last year, I only started with four different types of squash, you know, I I went to the customer base first that I thought I could sell to. And I said, where is your shortage of, of winter squash? And that's how I approached it because I this isn't my land. Like I need to be able to sell this stuff at the end. I don't have a place to store it, you know? And so I, I attacked it from that angle of, of things. And, you know, I, I saw other, you know, I worked on other farms that had the CSA model. So it's like, you know, what's getting put into the box each week and that's a great model, absolutely, but that's not a model that I can do just by myself. And so th- speaking of the squash varieties, last year I did Delicata, Autumn Frost, Honey Nut, and Lunga de Napoli. <laughs> and uh, I foregoed uh, Lunga de Napoli. It was a huge squash. It was on average like 20 or 25 pounds. It, oh. And they could get much, oh much bigger. I had one one year that weighed 103 pounds. Oh, wow. Uh. Yeah. Did so, you ever you ever know uh, uh, Cardwell's on the plaza, Frontenac? Yeah, really ritzy, top-notch restaurant. Bill Bill Cardwell called me one time. He says, I, I want 100 pounds of squash. I said, well, I got one. Wow. He, <laughs> says, he said, what? He said, what? I said, well, I got one that weighs 103 pounds. He says, yeah, send that one over. <laughs> okay. it's like, yeah. It's like a giant cheese you know, yeah, or something, Parmesan or something. Yeah. 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 It was like that long and about that big around. Wow. Oh. Yeah, so, you know, for the sake of, you know, uh, practicality, uh, practicality, yes. You're getting too muscular. <laughs> yeah, yes, the, the the biceps are really, um, you know, <laughs> busting out of my sleeves. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so I've foregoed that, but uh, I've kept all the other three that I mentioned from last year, and I've added several more varieties um, as well as acreage. Last year I was on one acre, this year I'm doing two of squash. So, Yes, delicata, honey nut. You've got your standard stuff too of acorn, spaghetti, spaghetti, uh, butternut, that kind of stuff that is standard grocery store winter squash. Yeah, the honey nut right out of the gate. I love it. I love the size. I love the flavor. 
it's it's a pretty unique variety of kind of a, but, a mini butternut, but a deep orange color. Fantastic sweet flavor. Edible skin, just like a delicata. Just incredible, incredible stuff. So as far as new varieties this year that I've added, I've added like a sugar pie pumpkin for, you know, if you want to make a pumpkin pie. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. Good. Pumpkin <laughs> season is coming, folks. Actually, right now, since it's 103 degrees, yeah. Yeah, exactly. we're just it's baking inside its shell right now <laughs> in the field. It probably most, is. Most pumpkin pie filling is butter in the squash, honestly. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's all the seasonings that, uh, you know, that pie filling that people think it of. creates that flavor that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I made an acorn, uh, acorn squash pumpkin pie once, and it was... Couldn't tell the difference at all. So yeah, so sugar pie pumpkin, a Long Island cheese, which is kind of a flat, pale-like pumpkin. Interesting. A winter sweet, which is, again, flat, but it's a teal-colored kind of squash, so I'm really excited about that. I'm experimenting with loofahs this year. Although they are edible, I will just be growing them for hopefully scrubbing bodies and soap. Uh, you know, they're a part of the squash gourd family. Yeah, so... That's, I think, you know, like I said, there's like 10 or 12 varieties this year. And the the onions that I've done has been, this year I experimented with 11 different varieties of onions. That seems very significant to me, not as yeah. a grower, but like as a food person, I'm excited about <laughs> learning about all the varietals and flavor nuances. Yeah. I mean, you would think red onions, yellow, white. White. Okay. And green. Oh, green. Right, yeah. <laughs> Spring onion. But uh, yeah, Cipollini, Tropea. Those are kind of culinary oh, variety Cipollini. of onions. Oh, yeah, I love those. Those are short, squatty ones. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're like little squished. Oh, little donuts. Yeah, an onion donut. Yeah, yeah. Sweet like that. <laughs> he did convince me. Um, and they were the first to sell out in like three hours almost, it felt like. Not really. It was like five days I sold out of. It wasn't like you had 50 pounds in them either. Yeah, I had like 250 pounds of them and just. Yeah gone so yeah they're they're a hot thing and so i'm i'm hoping to expand that production so the goal the goal behind this year for the onions was to grow a whole lot of varieties and kind of deduce down to what was the flavor that people liked what was the size that i enjoyed i think i said in the car that i really enjoy excel sheets fun fact since you did know about my education background you wouldn't have seen this on my like linkedin or anything but when i went to school for undergrad my first year i studied math education i thought i wanted to be a math teacher but like golly yeah i love it i think i kind of nerd out so (laughs) uh yeah i was just showing paul my my spreadsheets of okay this is the average weight of each variety of onion and so anyway so yeah i've kind of deduced down to like okay, what varieties do I want to grow next year and really just crank up the production of those? So, so yeah. How do you think, what quantity of varieties do you think you're going to narrow it down to for next season? So I had 11 this year. I I would love to get down to like, I definitely want to keep keep Cipollini and Tropea. They're, like, they're great culinary onions that oh, just sure. love. Yes, yeah, So really up. bump those up. But then I would probably essentially get down to like a yellow sweet, a yellow pungent, and a red sweet, and a red pungent. So I hope two of each of those and just really crank up the um, production of those. So essentially two of each each color. Maybe a white too because people do enjoy the white variety of onions. I'm not a super fan of them, but got to give the people what they want. Sure. I don't know. You know, people people were quite uh, like dead set of what they wanted. 
also, you know, education is a part of this. You know, so a lot of people came to me and said, Vidalia, do you grow Vidalia? And I go, actually, you can't grow Vidalia onions here. It's actually just a select region of Georgia. Um, It's like a 20-county region that grows Vidalia onions. I've had to do that learning myself, too. As soon as people said, I want Vidalia, and I can't get my hands on it. It's just like hatch peppers. Walla Walla sweet onions. Mm -hmm. There's a Hawaiian variety, the same thing. And it's all, you know, patented, but you're copyrighted. I don't know what the plant patent or something or other. Sam, it's a regional thing. Yeah. Yeah. You can grow that onion. No problem. You just can't call it a Vidalia onion. Yeah, there's there's uh, a lot of that with like tequila. I think is from yeah, tequila, and bourbon, and right? Bourbon whiskey rules. There's only so, mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah standards and guidelines that must be followed. Yeah, so it's you know there is that piece of education. I think the other the other piece that has really opened my eyes to a lot of things. You know, one of my customer outlets that distributes a lot to restaurants is I need something distinguishable in an onion. It can't just be a red or Yellow, it has to be that culinary, that cipollini, that tropea. Same thing with the squash, too. It, it needs to have a different kind of air about it than just a butternut squash. Okay, no luring. Yes. Like the honey nut. The honey nut. Like. And, and chefs love it, too, because the skin is also edible, so it simplifies the process yes. of actually yeah. producing a delicious product faster. Right. Simplifies workload time. Exactly. Looks, looks a whole lot better on the menu, too. Say, yes. You know, cipollini onions. People yeah. are ready. Honey to nut, honey nut that. onion soup. That sounds honey amazing. Nut squash soup with yeah. cipollini. Well, onion. you guys made your honey nut hummus. We did last it year, was which was such a fantastic. Delight. I hope we can do that at least one more time. Yeah. I hope so too, because you guys were kind of my experiment of really broadcasting out squash seconds, is what I called it. And I'm really thankful that you guys took me up on that and said this food is too good to waste. Like one hundred percent agree. I like yeah. it has a little bump, a little bruise, sure. Like it can't sit on a grocery store shelf for a week or two, and I totally understand that. But man, when ninety percent of that squash is good, and so it was a really big leap of faith to say, "Well, people buy this from me quickly, preserve it, make something with it," you know. And I was really thankful that you guys took the the leap of faith on that. You know, that was cool. It's yeah, a real that. It's a real eye-opener for most people. When we were growing tomatoes, we used to grow a lot of tomatoes. And I would literally, while we were harvesting, throw away 50% of the crop out there in the field. Just, you can't afford to bring it back to the barn. You've got, as a farmer, you have, you're swimming in tomatoes. My wife was horrible at harvesting tomatoes because she wanted to bring all those seconds back to the house. It's like, we've already got 100 pounds in the house. You know, what are we going to do with the second or third 100 pounds, you know? And I came up with this saying, it says, there's a big difference between what you can eat and what you can sell. And that's, there's, there are words to live by. Sure. Yeah. And this, for example, with the tomatoes, is that technically become a, a green manure? Like just like- Sure. Just to me, it's- You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, there's this organization, Known and Grown. You've heard yeah. of them? Yeah. yeah. And they want to organize a, a group to do gleaning of fields. And I'm 100% behind that in one respect. I'd like for people, if they want to get it, if they can't get it, this is something I'm willing to give you kind of thing. But what I sacrifice is that if I put that in the ground, mm-hmm. then I can grow something else with it next year, right? Those resources. And to put it bluntly, when I sell a bale of hay, right, my farm leaves when I sell that bale of, farm, of hay, right? To find out how much left, if you were to take that bale of hay and burn it, the ashes that are left over, 
is the soil that, that used to be my farm, right? Extractive. The air, water, and sunshine just left in the, in the sky. But the soil, same goes for tomato, potato, squash, beans, whatever. So as much of that that I can retain on my farm as a philosophical thing. And so field cleaners, yeah, I don't know. You know, what's more valuable to me? Certainly there's a public relations bonus to be garnered with that. And you can go to bed with a smile on your face thinking about, I got some food out to some folks that were a little less fortunate. Yeah. But the fact is, they still left, left with my farm, you know. It's like, is it worth it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Sure, sure. Interesting perspective, yeah. One thing, uh, while we're having this discussion, and I don't know why I haven't thought about it before, it's probably super obvious to most people, but you kept mentioning the phrase winter squash, winter squash, and I'm guessing that's different than summer squash, which is the yellow and then also zucchini. Is that what we're talking you about? Got it. All right. Yeah. yeah. So they are different. There's... So yeah, you're. It's actually a good distinguishing question that we should answer right now. So summer squash are immature fruits. Oh. If you raise them long enough, they will develop a hard skin. They're not nearly as juicy and sweet and wonderful as winter squash are. So you eat them as immature fruits. Sometimes they still have the blossom. You saw the loofahs out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that blossom hadn't opened up for the ones I think we saw, mm. but that will open up and a pollinator will pollinate the stamen, draw that in and, and fertilize every seed, right? And then the fruit develops and hardens off, becomes a loofah squash or becomes a winter squash. But if you pick it, and in fact, if you pick it with a blossom on it, the chef will take that and put a little something, something in the blossom and cook it that way, but they are immature fruits. I don't know. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as... As we were, I've discussed this not only with Paul, but also the other farmer that leases land from Paul Aaron here at, with Black Rat Farms. We've discussed like, what is kind of our mission and our vision? I mean, she's a separate farm, but I just mean like, what is each of our farm's goals respective? And I think for me, it's it's the fact that winter squash is one, squash in general is one of the only things that is native to North America, you know? And so we need to be taking in more of that produce, that that crop because it's it's native here. And so I think that educating people about this grows well in our climate, this, you know, it's it's built for our our region. So that's something I want to kind of inform people because most people don't enjoy squash that much. Like it's, an, it's, it's the quintessential American crop yes. along with corn and most peppers and yes. potatoes, right? They're all the new world crops. It's like, yeah. what the hell were they eating over there in Eurasia? Sure. What were the Spanish doing before they had tomatoes? You know, what were the Italians doing before tomatoes, mm -hmm. for that matter? What were they doing before they had pasta, right? Right. That came yeah. from China. Mm -hmm. So what the hell were they eating? They weren't eating potatoes, the Irish. Sure. They started eating potatoes, and then they had a potato famine. They all moved over here to this part of the world. So. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think there's a lot of education behind saying that squash is important. It's a, important to our diet here, you know, in, in, you know, our region. That's interesting to think about, too, just kind of the more native perspective and just i mean it i guess it's a little bit of a buzzword too um sure. but thinking about things that are more natural to our bodies and digestive systems because we definitely yeah thanks to the things we see and eat yeah maybe taco bell or whatnot <laughs> easy, um, easy <laughs> it can be some challenges on our gi tract so yeah. it is kind of interesting to think what grows well here might also go well in our bellies and our bodies. And I, th I think a lot of times with, especially with smaller sized farms, agriculture operations, you're able to really use a lot of these, 
I guess you would call them heirloom varietals. And so they're things that varietals that are often lost that are not familiar with for folks. And, and you'll have a lot of different types of flavors that you're offering in the winter squash. So how many squash are you growing this year? Yeah, like Man. 10 to 12 different varieties. And yeah, oh, I forgot to mention one was kabucha, kabocha. Is that how you say it? It's the oh, orange, the dark orange. Yeah, C- kind of curry uh, is also in that. But um, yeah, 10 to 12 different varieties. Uh, to go back to just your previous question real quick on the distinguishing factors of winter squash versus summer squash too, uh, to also include the education piece, you know, I love my friends and my family, but I can't tell you how many times they've said, oh, so you grow that in the winter. And I go, no, you actually grow winter squash in the summer. And it's known to keep over winter that it it stores well, um, that you can keep it on your shelf. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of education piece that I also want to implement in this farm as well as there's the dietary um, that it grows well in our region and that how the storage life and, and preservation of, of that squash really is uh, meaningful. I think it's so impactful that you can keep something on your shelf or on your, on your countertop for months and months and months. I still actually have an autumn frost from last year's harvest, which is incredible. I was going to do a fun little post like harvest squash is soon coming, you know, and it's been 11 months, you know, and it's in peak condition. So pretty incredible, valuable crop that we can have um, at our fingertips. You know, if you want to talk about food security, if you want to talk about uh, doomsday (laughs) folks, you know, I don't know, like that squash is something that can keep hardy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's hardy and, and durable. And the idea of something that can be easily preserved through different weather transitions and seasons and, um, be a nutritional source for you and your family. It seems like a very wise thing to grow. Yeah, it's great for the bomb shelters. <laughs> just in case. And all you have, I mean, all you have to do is just keep it, what, in a dark place? Not even. Not even? Put it out there on that little table you got in front of the television, you know? Yeah. Along with the sweet potatoes. Just okay. put them right out there and all them big picture books you got there, you know? And that's <laughs> It, maybe a recipe book on uh, winter yeah. squash. There you go. Yeah. They'll keep just fine in the bright, you know, and they shouldn't get below about, I don't know, 40 degrees or so. Oh, okay. Sweet potatoes shouldn't get below about 50 degrees. So they're not finicky at all? No. Okay. You know, they can't, they got to be in really good shape. Yeah. You know, if you do have an injury to them. They won't last. They won't last yeah. near as long. Uh, sweet potatoes actually will go ahead and heal over pretty much. If you if you post harvest handle them just right, okay. So we talked a little bit more just recently about squash, onions. Are there benefits beyond the delightful flavor? Are there any secret health benefits we know about onions that you've happened upon in some of your reading? I'm just curious. I so I wish I was that well versed in the health benefits. I mean, I definitely know they're in the allium family with garlic and the garlic benefits have to uh, be very well noted of the health benefits as well. So I would imagine they are aligned in similar health benefits, garlic and onions. You know, immune boosting, you know, typically there's a lot of uh, concoctions of what what is the, like a fermented garlic thing or people do like hot shots of it. It's like peppers and onions and garlic and- Oh, like a fire cider? Fire cider, thank you. Yeah, that does have a lot of savory components, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. compared to like an elderberry like concoction that is also kind of, you know, along that same lines of- Good good rye whiskey too, (laughs) better than 
<laughs> Probably better for you than me. Probably. Yeah. So a fire cider, I couldn't think of that. Yeah. Honey's in there too, you know, sometimes and some herbs. And yeah. Flower parts even. I, yeah. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. So I, I mean, there's got to be loads of health benefits, but I'm not as well versed in that kind of stuff. I love onions. It's something that we put in every single dish, every single night. So that's my love of of food. It, it it also came, onions and, and squash came out of, I enjoy these crops. Like that's just the flavor you're, profile. You're a chef, right? I am not a, I am not a chef, but I am a appreciative of all things <laughs> chef related. I do all the cooking at my place and I tell people, nothing bad will happen if you start by sauteing onions. That's true. <laughs> and it adds a nice, nice flavor <laughs> undertones. Can't. And they get real silky if you give them enough time. Keep I, talking. Yeah, I, I do. I do the cooking as well in my house, and I I do love love working with onions quite a bit. Yep, I do the cooking as well at my house <laughs> <laughs> for myself for yourself. Yeah, I think they're they are an underrated uh, vegetable, just like squash. And I don't mind being a humble onion farmer, <laughs> you know, and squash farmer. Like I enjoy those crops, and I think that. They need to be elevated more, and I think they need to be highlighted more. So, yeah, the goal behind Great House Garden is, yes, this is my second year, so there could be a lot of evolution between now and 15 years, but my vision for now is... You're here for 15 years? <laughs> Paul, what? land is expensive, so I, I will still be here in 15 years. No, I'm just kidding. You know, to grow crops that I can plant once, weed, and then harvest. So, you know, things I've also looked at are potatoes and sweet potatoes, garlic, melons, even to some extent peppers. I'm not sure I would ever grow tomatoes. I love tomatoes. Tomatoes are my favorite crop ever. I love tomatoes, but I cannot stand picking them. (laughs) (laughs) That you can be there for hours and hours and hours. And I've worked at Lots of farms where you pick for hours and hours and hours. And it's great. Like, they're awesome. The flavor is unreal, unmatched. Unparalleled. Unparalleled, exactly. But, um, yeah, so those are other crops that I would consider growing for Great House Garden. But, yeah, that's kind of my headspace and vision for, you know, moving forward. That's really exciting. Excellent, yeah. Yeah. And I really think you are filling a niche, too, because as St. Louis continues to grow in the culinary scene and sort of mindfulness and curiosity to flavors and eating and regionality and things that are going on as the culinary underbelly kind of grows and gets momentum and we're being seen outside of the shadow of Chicago, which is exciting. Um, You know, chefs and restaurants are going to be seeking more unique things. And I think having like some really specific, interesting flavor loaded squash is a, a fun route to go and also these really unique uh, culinary onions it's just you know that would be something you'd have to special order from somewhere who knows where and knowing a name and a face with a person and a farm that's within 45 minutes or so st louis like this could be a a wonderful gateway to yeah expanding the food and palates and the st louis culinary scene yeah you know i grew up in kansas city and my mom owns a restaurant over there and The food scene, my mom has been in the food scene for decades. The food scene does not compare to St. Louis. It's incredible the amount of skills that we have and talent of chefs and and growers. Like 
we have some big giants in this area and it's really cool to like watch that and the fact that i got to like be underneath some of them like paul and amy like those are some really cool forces of nature that yeah they have they have a place like i don't get to work with chefs that much but hearing the uh what's the awards uh I'm, james beard big james beard and there's the other state fair <laughs> use your words um, but, it's, it's, but it's a restaurant award yeah mean? it's a restaurant award and i'm totally blanking on my name i mean prominent prominent award but no james beard also did come to mind but um michelin Michelin, thank you. I was I was uh, doing this. I was thinking it was a tired. W word. I was it, just like, Bleh. yeah, it's an M. Yeah, it's Michelin. Tired. It's tired. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, the Michelin. Like we have chefs here in St. Louis with you know all those awards, which is incredible. But it also takes growers so that those folks can get those awards, and maybe yeah, and maybe I, we'll have farmers with those awards. That would be that would incredible. be really neat. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't it? Maybe maybe this podcast will uh, get us some recognition. Yes. No, I think high integrity ingredients, <laughs> the finest gold stars. Yeah, and they're local too. You know, the <laughs> the game is I, I, several years ago, the statistic was the average piece of food that you and I eat from the store, or whatever, travels an average of two thousand miles. Right. right? Yes. Before you get it on your plate. That's astonishing. And it is. devastating and disappointing. I hate thinking about that, but it's a very good point to make and remind people. Yeah. So well, it's not like this area is, is new to growing vegetables. Soulard Market, right? This area right here, as well as, you know, this kind of crescent, all the way, actually a donut all the way over in East St. Louis. This was the kind of vegetable basket for all of St. Louis. Mm hmm. And then there's the, you know, there's the big commercial area up there that, that does exporting of goods out of here, as well as importing, you know, mm -hmm. bringing stuff in. But, you know, there are some big vegetable farms around mm -hmm. uh, St. Louis area here, and they all sell down there, the produce row. So it's not like this is something new that's happened here. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool to like just kind of, I mean, when I initially emailed and called Paul, I had no idea his name and his connections, and it's just led to kind of this exponential growth of my experience, my knowledge, my connections, and it's been, yeah, very valuable. Like, and I think, I think if there's anyone else in the field that is interested in trying to grow, dip your toe in leasing land, like learn under some mentorship. There's plenty of farm jobs out there. You shouldn't do anything for free. Trust me, there's there's enough farms that will hire you on the spot of saying, yeah, come out, get some experience, but also we'll pay you because there's enough of that uh, work to be done. Sure. But uh, yeah, I definitely think that getting some sort of mentorship, there's a wealth of knowledge here in our region from all sides and angles. And you can really like decide, I want to do onions and winter squash, or I want to do apothecary, or I want to do, you know, or I guess herbalism. I want to do all these different types of things. You can find that select topic or interest that you have so it's it's pretty pretty incredible the the resources we have yeah like i said in comparison to to kansas city and my mom's been in the food scene for 30 years and my sister went to college here too and she loves coming back here for the food scene because she's in the restaurant business with mm -hmm. my mom they love coming over here for all the different restaurants that we can try and, you know, and it's it's really kind of a fun experience because they've been in the restaurant scene for so long and now they get to help me harvest and, you know, make those selections of 
is this restaurant quality onion or is this, uh, you know, kind of a seconds <laughs> pile? Kind of, and a full circle exposure yeah. too. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um, I did have a question connecting back to, you know, since you're leasing the land and you can't save everything here and you need to sell it, move it, make the money and et cetera. How are you plugging in and finding the connections to get rid of, you know, 10,000 pounds of onions real quick? Like how? I mean, Paul sounds like a good network of connections, but have you hand gleaned a lot of these folks or use social media or how have you been able to find your onion buyers? My onion buyers. Yeah, they, you know, that was as I was considering the next crop that I wanted to do, whether it was potatoes or sweet potatoes or melons, onions being one of those. And I went to the folks last fall and said, okay, I'm going to add a second crop. These are the crops I'm considering. And onions seem to stand out of saying, we don't have a good source for that. And, or if we do, like, you know, whatever reasons, quality, shipping, whatever it might be the issue for. There's also a pretty big farm that closed down in our region, about two hours away, that produced tons of onions for our region. And, and so that was something in the back of my head. Did I? No, I did not even probably put a dent in the amount of onions that they produced by any means. But it, it was another consideration of thinking, okay, that that's a farm that's closed down and they provide it to the St. Louis region. It's basic economic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I try to approach it in a in a smart way of of going about who my buyers are and and what their needs are. Like that seems to be the most considerate factor. What do you need? Okay, I'll grow it for you. Will you buy it from me? Great. Yeah. So I've only had onions on the market for about three weeks and I'm 75% sold out. And it's like, whoa, this was a lot, you know, 4,000 pounds. And okay, next year, that was about a third of an acre. So I think if I scale up to a full acre, what would that look like? But yeah, it's also concerning of where can I put this, (laughs) put all these onions right now. It's in my spare bedroom. And if I triple that size, that's not where they can We're go. We're going to need a bigger house. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger house. Exactly. Yeah. Storage is a huge consideration. You know, the cool thing is, you know, Known and Grown was brought up earlier and I've gotten to talk to a couple of the other farmers and right now it's not possible, but maybe in the future we can like source a, a cooler and fridge space together, maybe even freezer eventually. So that's um, a cool resource connection that is connecting a whole bunch of different farmers together, you know, to to consider a lot of farmers don't have cooler space. So you want to talk about how quickly they have to harvest and then get it to their markets without cooler space. That's that's a big deal, you know, and I was I was shocked. I mean, the, the two farms I worked at, they had cooler space, so I didn't even think about it. But as I was considering it, there's a lot of farms in our region that don't have that. And understandably so you know but yeah. one of the benefits to winter squash and onions right they don't really they don't need, need that need much yeah much careful temperature regulation the sad thing about my winter squash last year is there was one variety that i didn't get sold fast enough and uh quick freeze nights happened and uh yeah a lot of it froze and once it freezes it doesn't unthaw very well so you know Onions, I knew I had a little bit more time with, you know, of of selling. But winter squash, that turnaround time before freeze happens is pretty, uh, it's a pretty tight timeline. So it'll be an interesting fall harvest and turnaround time. So I'm pretty excited. I get to take home uh, a really beautiful onion. Where can other folks find 
your produce? Yeah, so I sell to a restaurant distributor, Eat Here St. Louis, but then also a couple little local grocery stores, Local Harvest and City Greens. And I also... Fair share. Fair shares, thank you. Yeah, Fair Share CCSA and Theodora Farms, Farm Store. Oh man, I really will feel bad if I leave anyone out. So, oh, uh, a Red Circle is another group and North Sarah Food Hub have also been great support. Oh, and last but not least, Summit Foods. They're over in Kirkwood. They're kind of a daily farmer's market stand, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, kind of like a Soulard, but like just kind of a standalone building, but yeah, open daily. So yeah, they've recently bought from me. So I'm really excited about that. So yeah, so got my hands in a couple different places. Fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. And you're on social media as well? Yes, social media, Great House Garden. So sometimes there's an STL behind that, but (laughs) Great House Garden, depending if that handle was available. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having us out. I really appreciate it and giving us a nice tour. Yeah, the land is beautiful. We've seen all sorts of things. Got uh, got hummingbirds (laughs) and deep into a green roof. (laughs) Green roof, yeah. Deep into the squash and onion field or should say just squash field being yeah squash. yeah the onion field looked a little clean yeah a little yeah it was cleaned up about a month ago yeah if you don't mind me saying one more thing of course please yeah i think um the last vision of this farm that i have is that it will just be a space of people learning and having community here and it's been really neat to have folks from all different backgrounds come out to help harvest to help weed It's been really humbling this year when I've had some health issues and some car issues and just frankly tired issues. (laughs) I'm just tired and there was drought issues too. And I really had the support of my friends and family really rally around me and and folks on different social media platforms just come in and pitch in a hand. Um, And that really made a difference to, to keep me going because there was a moment where, or there's been a couple moments where I'm like, I'm too tired to keep going. And they're like, you got this. We're going to support you. People who have never even pulled a weed in their life come out and help for hours and hours and hours. So I think that that is another hope and vision for this farm is that people who haven't gotten to experience something like that get to, you know, maybe they don't want to do it 40 hours a week. And rightfully so. I understand that. But um, it's pretty cool and pretty powerful to interact on that level, you know, once or twice a season. That's something we've always done here at the farm. Early on, I was pretty much just me. Why I'd get together a bunch of friends, and we call it a weed and feed. Sure, mm-hmm. you know, like the like the stuff you put on your lawn. You know, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. they come out and pull weeds or hoe or harvest or whatever, and and then we all have a big meal. And usually, we'd have uh, tater tots with the kids and uh, bratwurst. So we called it tots and brats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tots and brats and weed and feed. So. And we've always had. I had a really severe injury here several years ago, and a woman in the community here came out and and helped me. Was helping me early on in the greenhouse, and we had the whole floor of the greenhouse full of stuff. And I nearly blew my hand off the end of my arm. And she's like, "Well, I'll see you through the rest of the season." And I said, "Look, you don't, you can't, you have no idea what you're signing up for." She says, "I don't care." And there were like 300 people that showed up here over the course of the summer from the community, from St. Louis, from around, you know, and it was really a humbling thing, you know, 
Yeah, they, and they all are having a great time, you know, to get it, you know, six, eight, ten people out here. But we all had a big harvest party, and that turned into the to the winter solstice party. And then, of course, you have a winter solstice party, you have to have a summer solstice party. Yeah, I mean, it only only fits. So we've always been, like, always been a you know really welcoming to people who want to come out and see what's going on on the farm. So, yeah, I I concur with that. It's really beautiful to hear. And as these people have come out to assist both of you in certain ways with the community and and just a, a network of support for for both of you and your indiv- individual stories, it's nurturing you so you can continue to nurture the plants you're growing and nurture the soil. It's a, like a really meaningful circle of like impact that you're describing. Of course. It's a really helpful part of the story. Yeah. I can't do this farm alone. I can't do it without all the dozens of support. And, and frankly, sometimes people can't get here and they just send me messages. And it's it's really important just to to keep me going. Encouragement goes a long way. Thank you so much for your time yeah, thank today. You. Thank you so much. Both of you. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Enjoyed it. This is called a water wheel transplanter. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Yes. Thanks again to Rachel Greathouse of Greathouse Garden Farm. You can find her products at City Greens Market, Local Harvest Grocery, Fair Shares, CCSA, Finder Farmer, Eat Here, STL, and Theodora Farm Store. You can also find her on social at greathouse underscore garden. This is Tangle Taproot, a production of Milk and Hummus. I'm John Cowan. And I'm Kristen. And I'm Angel. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and review us. Again, thanks so much for listening. Send us your thoughts. Tangled Taproot at milkandhummus.com. We plan to answer questions and share feedback. Until next time.